0: All right. Well, good morning. Welcome to Harvest. We're so glad you're here worshiping with us today. We're going to go ahead and dive into God's Word together now. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open that up. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardback black one somewhere there on the floor around you. You can borrow one of those. We'd love for you to do that as well. We're going to start today in Jeremiah 31. Uh, and we're going to be hitting several different scriptures today. So across the top of your note sheet there, I've got them all listed. So you can kind of use that to follow along as we kind of jump around a little bit this morning. Um, but we're starting in Jeremiah 31. So you can go ahead and get started There, So this summer, we have been in this series called Epic, and uh, we've been looking at the epic story of the Bible, the big overarching story of Scripture. I've said every week, it's this giant, mind-blowing, unbelievable, life-changing, eternal story that God has written and is still writing in many ways. And now, today, we have made it to what we're going to call the final chapter of the story, and uh, we're calling that chapter Consummation. Um, Now, I know consummation is kind of a strange word, and when I say that, you probably have several different ideas that come into your head, uh, probably none of which actually apply to the Bible. So let's kind of redefine what we're talking about here. When you look at the definition of that word, it actually means this, perfect, to finish or complete, and to achieve. And that's what we see at the end of the story here in the Bible, is that in this final chapter of the story of God, he is going to do just that. He's going to perfectly finish and achieve his purposes for all of creation. And this, what's really encouraging to me, is that this is the chapter that we're living in right now. Like all of us are in this, we're right in the middle of the chapter. It's not completed yet, it's not done, but we're in it and we're living this out as part of God's story. And because of that, I want you to pay really close attention today to what his word says and compare that to how are you living your life in this final chapter of God's story, right? Because how you choose to live from this day forward is going to determine not just what happens to you in this life, but what's going to happen to you in the next life, in all of eternity, the scripture says. And so God is calling us to a bigger story, something beyond just your, you know, 70, 75, 80, 90, if you're lucky, years here on this earth. But it matters what you do now for the future of what that's going to look like. So here's kind of the big idea. Here's what I think he's calling us to today. Live your unfinished story for the kingdom of God's glory. I love that we ended with that last worship song today, singing about the King Jesus who rules the kingdoms of heaven and earth. That's who our eyes are going to be set on today as we look at the scriptures. So point number one today is this. Jesus' death initiates his kingdom. Jesus' death initiates his kingdom. Now, before I get to Jeremiah, last week we talked about Jesus' de- uh, life, death, and resurrection, right? That was kind of the, the synopsis of last week's sermon. And right before he died, right before he went to the cross, in the scriptures we find that Jesus had this meal called we call the last supper with his disciples. They all gathered around the table and they were having one last meal together before he went to the cross, and at that meal he taught them and he modeled for them what we call today communion. Okay? And in the midst of that ceremony, in the midst of that ordinance, here's what he said, Luke 22:20. 20. This will be on the screen for you. It says, "And likewise he took, Jesus took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood." This cup that is poured out for you. What cup is he talking about? Is he talking about like the physical cup in his hand? Kind of, partially. He did have a cup, I'm sure, and he was pointing them to that picture. But if you remember, last week we read Philippians chapter 2, and it was talking about Jesus himself, and it said that Jesus came to be emptied, and he emptied himself. Do you remember that? I told you that some of your translations actually says that he, he poured himself out. The cup that he's referring to is actually himself. That Jesus came to pour out his life for us. And he says that somehow in pouring out his life for us on the cross, that, that somehow initiated what he calls here the new covenant in his blood. Jesus is illustrating in this time, before he ever dies, before he goes to the cross, he's illustrating that his coming death, that his life will be sacrificially poured out and used up for all of us. And that somehow that starts this new thing that we actually find out about is not a new thing because God told us about it way back in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 31. So look at your scriptures now, Jeremiah 31, chapter 31, verse 31, okay, two 31's, here we go. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, No more. So, here in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah is telling us, he's prophesying about this coming new covenant 600 years before Jesus brings it to fulfillment. And he says here that God's going to create a new covenant with Israel and Judah. So, what that means basically is he's going to create a new covenant with his people. All right. At this point, his people, the nation of Israel, have been divided into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. So, he's saying, all of my people, All of them are going to be a part of this new covenant. All the descendants of Abraham. He says, but it's not going to be like the old covenant. Do you remember we talked about Abraham and the covenant like several weeks ago? Is anybody here for that one, right? We had a whole message on covenant. And in that section, God spoke to Abraham. He said, I'm going to choose you. I'm going to start with you. I'm going to create a whole nation of people who are going to be my people are going to follow me, who are going to worship me, and I'm going to make a covenant with you that if you'll love me, if you'll obey me, if you'll follow me, that I'll make you into a great nation, I'll give you this promised land to live in, and I will make you a blessing to the whole world. That was the old covenant that God made with Abraham, but right here, Jeremiah tells us that the old covenant, that they broke it, that they didn't keep their side. They still sinned against God, they still rebelled against God, and they broke the covenant. And so now God says, since you broke it, we need a new one. We need a new covenant to replace the broken one. But this covenant's going to be different. He says, this time, instead of writing laws on tablet, instead of writing them on stone or scrolls, I'm going to write them on your heart. I'm going to put it inside of you. What does that mean? You see, the first covenant was broken because the people tried to follow the laws of God and they tried to follow him in his holiness and they just couldn't do it. Have you ever felt that in your life? For like you were trying desperately as hard as you can to do what God says to do and you just can't seem to do it. They felt that and they broke that covenant. And so this time God says, It's not enough to just change your behavior and line up with some written laws. He says, in the new covenant, I'm not just going to change your behavior. I'm going to come in, and I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to get to the root of the problem. Because if I change your heart, guess what else will change? Your behaviors will follow. He says, so this covenant's going to be different. And then he has this statement. I love this right here. Look at this in uh, verse um, 33 at the end of it. It says, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. If you've read your Bible, you might have noticed that that phrase is repeated over and over and over and over again in both the Old and the New Testament. Because this has always been God's heart. This has always been his desire is to bring a people to himself that will love him and know him and that they can have a relationship together. Way back when God created us, created humanity, this is what he created Adam and Eve to be. This relationship with him, this unbroken, loving relationship. But they sinned and they rebelled and they broke it. And ever since then, God has been working to restore this relationship. When he made that covenant with Abraham that we talked about earlier in Genesis 17, he comes, he chooses Abraham, he makes a covenant. He says, I want to make this covenant with you and I will be your God and you will be my people. A little bit later in Exodus 29, his people are traveling through the wilderness and God comes and he gives them the tabernacle, which was a giant tent that they built everywhere they went. And God's presence would come down and dwell in the tent so they could come and worship him and that God could be with his people and his people could be with God. And he repeats this phrase for them again there. Later on in Leviticus 26 and then again in Ezra 14, we see where the people are continuing to to miss the mark. They're continuing to rebel. They're continuing to sin against God. And he has to discipline them. He says, I'm going to discipline you because I want to bring you back. Just like a father disciplines his child to correct them and bring them back into what is right, God corrects his people and disciplines them to bring them back. And in disciplining them, he says, I'm doing this because I'm your God and you are my people. Later on, it gets even more severe and they're cast out of the promised land because of their false worship and disobedience. But in Zechariah 8, he comes back again and he promises to bring the people back to the land and back to Jerusalem and specifically back to the temple, the place where God's presence dwelt. He says, I love you. I'm gonna bring you back because I am your God and you are my people. Paul picks this up again in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 6, when he's talking about the church, he says that all of us who are following Christ, that we have been given the Holy Spirit and that we are built together to be the temple of God. That God's presence no longer dwells in a tent and no longer in a physical building, but God's presence now dwells inside his people. And in Paul saying that, he says, God's presence dwells with us because he is our God and we are his people. And then we look ahead into Revelation 21, the great day when we will finally be in the presence, the physical presence of almighty God for the rest of eternity. And God says, I am coming to live eternally with my people because I am their God and they are my people. God has been banging this same drum for centuries, millennia even. He wants us. To be his people. And he says at the end, here's how I'm going to do it. He says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. In order for God's desire to come true, God has to deal with sin. Because right now sin separates us from God. That's, the, that's what sin does. It creates a wall of separation between us and God. And God has to tear down that wall and remove that so that he can be with us and we can be with him. He says, here's how I'm going to do. I'm going to forgive and I'm going to forget. Now, not literally forget, he's God. He doesn't forget anything, right? Like some of you thought that your mom didn't forget anything. God really doesn't forget anything, okay? Like he's God, he remembers all of it. What he's saying here is that I'm gonna not forget that, I'm gonna forget the guilt of that sin. That that's gonna be cast away, that that's no longer gonna be a thing. How can he do that? How can a just, holy, holy, perfect, sinless God just cast the guilt of sin aside as if it's not important, as if it doesn't matter. He can't enter Jesus. Because sin had to be dealt with, God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to come and to live a perfect and sinless life on this earth, and then to go to the cross and die a sinner's death in our place, for us, as a substitute. And then after he died, they buried him, and three days later, he rose back to life to prove that he was God, to conquer sin and conquer death, and to offer us what God promised right here in Jeremiah, that he would be able to now forgive and forget our sin because Jesus paid for it. This is how the new covenant comes. Hebrews 9.15 says it like this. Therefore, he is the mediator, that's Jesus, of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Christ, our perfect mediator, redeems us from sin, it says here, for an eternal inheritance. That sounds pretty good. What's that? What's the eternal inheritance? It is nothing short of the glorious kingdom of our God. We get to be heirs of the kingdom. In Ephesians, Paul writes this, chapter 1, verse 13, in him, Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of Of his glory. He says, All those who have believed in Jesus, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. When you put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit came and lived inside of you. The third member of the Trinity, God Himself in spirit form, came and lived inside of you. Why? He came to live in you and to write God's laws on your heart, just as Jeremiah said He would. And he comes in and he starts to change our hearts and he starts to change our desires and we start to see things differently and we start to think differently and we start to, we start to have different um, things that, that press us and move us because the Holy Spirit of God is changing our hearts. This is how you know that you're really a follower of Jesus. But that presence of the Holy Spirit isn't just to change us, it's also, it says Paul here, is a guarantee of our inheritance. <laughs> Because we already have the presence of God living in us now, it is a promise, it is a guarantee that one day we will be in the complete and full presence of God for all of eternity. It guarantees that we're part of the family. He guarantees that we're part of the kingdom. Jesus' death initiates that kingdom and then he calls us into it. Courtney's uh, mom, her name was Edie, and uh, Edie was just this wonderful, loving, generous, wise woman with a really kind of kooky sense of humor. Um, and we just, I loved her to death. And we, got, got a few years with her before uh, her passing last year. But Courtney always tells this story about her that when she was when she was growing up, her her grandma and dad, and dad always told her that her mom's favorite candy mom, and her th- time favorite candy. Was chocolate covered cherries? You guys know what I'm talking about. You guys seen these, right? Like the chocolate covered cherry things, the boxes of them. So, she, so that's every year at Christmas they had to get mom a box of chocolate covered cherries. This was like her favorite candy. And so every year, every Christmas they would get her a box of chocolate covered cherries, and she would get she would unwrap the box and talk, like, "Oh, thank you so much." And then she would go and she would eat all the chocolate covered cherries, and everything was good. And then one day, Courtney was like in college at this point. So from from childhood she's been doing this. She's in college now. She's walking through the house. And her mom is holding one of her many boxes of chocolate-covered cherries in her hands. And just kind of bluntly out loud says, why do you people think I like these things? (laughs) And Courtney was like, what? Like, this is your favorite candy. She's like, no, it's not. She's like, grandma and dad always said this was your favorite candy, like, ever since you were a kid. She's like, no. She's like, when we were kids, we never got candy. And so, and when we did get some, my brothers didn't like these. So I would eat them just to have some candy to eat. And so her whole life, she's been eating chocolate-covered cherries because everybody thought it was her favorite candy. And Courtney's like, why didn't you say something? Like, why didn't you tell us? And she's like, it just wouldn't be Christmas without chocolate-covered cherries. <laughs> like, you see, all those years, Edie had been changing her behavior to give the impression that she loved chocolate-covered cherries. But, somehow, in all those years, her heart had not changed to actually love chocolate-covered cherries. Some people are in a relationship with Jesus like that. For years, you have been changing your behavior to try to match up with what the church said, or your parents said, or the Bible said, or what you think Jesus said. To give the impression That you love Jesus, and you may even have yourself fooled into thinking that you really do and that you really are a follower. But if all that has changed is your outward behavior, you're not there yet. You have to look deeper. Has your heart changed? Has the Holy Spirit of God come and given you a new heart With new desires, with new loves, with new passions that center around the person of Jesus Christ. That's when you know. That's when you know that you're truly saved. Some of you have been trying to figure this whole Christian life thing out and this whole church thing just by looking at your behaviors or lack thereof. You need to look deeper. God is saying the new covenant doesn't happen in laws written out on paper. The new covenant happens in laws that are written on your heart. When the Holy Spirit comes and changes you from the inside out. Jesus' death initiates his kingdom by doing this, sending the Holy Spirit. And so, what you need to ask yourself today is this Am I in Jesus' kingdom? Have I actually gotten in the kingdom? Has my heart been changed? Or am I just going through the motions? If it hasn't been changed, you need to cry out to the Lord and ask him to do that. So Jesus' death initiates his kingdom. And then point number two today is this. Jesus' church manifests his kingdom. This is our job as the church. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. That's where we're going next. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 17. Here Paul is writing to the church, and he says this. And he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul here, again, writing to the church, says this. He says, he, Jesus, came and preached. What did he preach? He preached the gospel. He comes and he preaches the gospel to us. When the Holy Spirit comes and opens up your eyes for the first time to see and understand the gospel, when he comes and he regenerates your heart to start to believe the things of God, when he comes and calls you to put your faith in Jesus, that is Christ through his Holy Spirit coming and preaching the gospel to you. Better than any preacher can ever do. It's the Holy Spirit that changes you. And he says he came and he preached to those who were far off and to those who were near. In his context, in the original context, he's talking here about the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews were already near to God. They were already, you know, monotheists and they were already on the God train. They just need to find Jesus. The Gentiles were far off. They weren't even to, you know, Yahweh yet, more or less Jesus. But he says here that he preached to both. And what he's saying here is that the gospel is for everyone. Not just those who look good, not just those who grew up in church, not just those in America. The gospel is for everyone. He says we are, when you hear the gospel and you're brought in, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You no longer have to be far from God. You no longer have to be separated from him. If you believe in the gospel, if you put your faith in Jesus, you can be brought near. He says you become fellow citizens, members of the household of God. Faith in Jesus brings you into his kingdom. Now you're near to God. Now you're part of the family and the church, and when I say the church, I'm not talking about like just Harvest Bible Chapel here, okay? I'm not just talking about even the walls of a building. I'm talking about Big C Church, all the people of God across the entire globe, all right? The church is the manifestation of God's kingdom and family on the earth today. That's our job, is to be Jesus to everyone around us and to do it collectively. Paul here says that you're being built into a holy temple as Christ is the cornerstone. Think about a building, brick by brick, being built, and the bottom foundational stone is Jesus himself. That is a picture of the church, that we are all brought together, centered around him, built on him, connected in Christ, He says, you're being built together into a dwelling place for God. God doesn't dwell in buildings anymore. He dwells in you by the Spirit. As the Holy Spirit comes and he fills each one of us individually, when we come together as a body corporately, we're now bringing that Spirit together to manifest Jesus to everyone. Paul goes on, flip over to chapter 3. In Ephesians Paul goes on in chapter 3 he starts to lay out the message of the gospel so he talks about the gospel and, and tells us what it is and then he gets to verse 10 and look at this he says so that through the church through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places so so, so get this God's plan for the earth for the gospel is to work, through the church this blows my mind sometimes God's plan a to save all those who are called unto the glory of his name is the church and there is no plan b (laughs) like it's all us like in my mind I'm saying God I can think about 10 better ways to do this right like I've seen us we're not great but this is what God has chosen. He says that the church would uh, would um, communicate the manifold wisdom of God. That's the gospel. right? Which means that we must go out and live the gospel and model the gospel and show the gospel and preach it and teach it and spread it. We have to display it in every possible way. The manifold wisdom of God. That's how the world will know. And thankfully, because... We're kind of B-teamers sometimes, okay? God gives us, like, straight, clear instructions on how to do this. We get this from Matthew 28. Many of you already know this passage, but I would encourage you to go ahead and flip there in your Bibles. It's always good to see God's word again. Flip over to Matthew 28, verses 18 is where we're starting. This is Jesus' final words to his disciples before he leaves the earth. This is what we call the Great Commission, okay? It's his final words to his disciples. He says this in verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So his final words to his disciples, he starts with all authority. Right? You think he's trying to to communicate something here? He's like, God in heaven has given me all authority to tell you exactly what to do. That Jesus is in charge. He's the one leading it. He's the one that we're following. We don't get a vote in the matter. This is not the great suggestion. This is the great commission. This is a commandment to us. He says, and all authority has been given to me. He says, go. Go. That little word in the Greek actually means as you go. It's not just like go over here for a minute and do this and then go back to the rest of your life. No, it means as you go through your day, at work, at school, at the gym, at the kids' ball game, whatever you're doing, wherever you're going, like be about this. He says make disciples of all nations. Again, all nations without distinction, right? Make disciples of everyone. How do we do that, God? gives us two ways, baptizing and teaching. Now, in that word baptizing, that's kind of a shorthand way of Jesus saying, share the gospel, let people be saved, and baptize them. All right, he's not talking about literally just getting people wet. If that's all it took, man, we could like take care of the whole city real quick, right? Like we just walk around with a fire hose and just douse everybody, okay? He's not talking about just getting people wet. This is kind of just, he's like, listen, go share the gospel, let them come to Christ and then baptize them. That's the first step in discipleship. Discipleship isn't just after people get saved, it starts with salvation. He says, and then teach them, instruct them what God's word says, train them in how to follow it, model it for them, exhort them. Because some days, even though we know what it says, it's hard to do it, isn't it? We need to exhort one another, we need to press one another. This is teaching. And then he gives us this great promise at the end. He says, and I am with you. And then right after this, he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. (laughs) How are you with us, Jesus? Like, you just just left us. Like, how how are you? The Holy Spirit. He says, I'm going, but I'm sending you something even better. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit to live inside of you and to be with you all the time, everywhere you go, empowering you to do all that I've commanded you to do. I think we need to start rethinking about this, less about us going out and doing the work of the gospel for God, and more about God working through us to do the work of the gospel for himself. It's actually the Holy Spirit doing the work. We're just the vessel. I'm with you, he says. Church, we are supposed to be manifesting his kingdom everywhere we go. Have you ever met one of those people that, like, everything about them screams whatever their thing is? Right? Like, they're like the sports guy. Like, like they're all about the Cardinals. They're all about the Blues. And everything about them says... Blues or Cardinals or whatever, if they're the Disney person, like, everything about them says Disney or their political party or whatever their thing is, right? Like, they they wear the shirts and they make the Facebook posts and they have the stickers on the car and they like, every event on their calendar is surrounded around this thing and every extra dollar in their bank account goes towards their thing. Like, you know what I'm talking about? Right? So there's, like, this term now that people are using for these kind of people um, and they're calling them superfans. Have you heard of this? You've seen this term, like, maybe on social media, superfans? So I was doing a little research this week thinking about this, and I found this story about this superfan, right? 39-year-old Herbert, Herbert Chavez from the Philippines is a Superman superfan. In 2012, he claimed the Guinness Book World Record for the most Superman memorabilia at 1,253 items. And there he is with his collection. Since 2012, that has now grown to over 5,000 items. And that's not even the best thing. It goes way beyond just collecting. He has spent thousands of dollars and nearly two decades on a total of 23 dramatic cosmetic surgeries to literally look like superman. Look how far he's gone to become the living embodiment of his childhood hero. Look at this before and after picture. Go ahead and go one more. Go one more. That is commitment. Right? A little freaky, but also commitment, right? Like like he is going all out to manifest his hero. Church, we need to be a people. Who go all out to manifest our Savior? Everything about our life should scream Jesus everywhere we go. And I know that's a little uncomfortable. And there's this whole thing in our Christian culture today that like we need tonight be too offensive, and we don't want to turn people off. And whatever, like you know what? If you're turning them off because you're a jerk, that's a problem. If you're turning them off because you love Jesus way too much, that's awesome. And God loves it. And those who are called to him will love it too. And they will come and they will know because we are manifesting the greatest name that there is. And some of us need to put aside some of the other things that we're spending all of our time and energy and money manifesting to the world and start putting that emphasis on Jesus. Jesus church manifests his kingdom. So ask yourself this question. Which do people see more in my life? The kingdom of Jesus or the kingdom of self? In your day-to-day life, as you're going to work, as you're going to the store, as you're going to pick the kids up from school, whatever you're doing, like what do people see most? What are you manifesting? The kingdom of Jesus? Or the kingdom of Micah? Or whatever your name is. Hopefully you're not manifesting my kingdom. That would be weird. Okay. But like whatever your thing is. Jesus' death initiated the kingdom. His church manifests the kingdom here, today, now. And one day. Point number three, Jesus' return finalizes his kingdom. Jesus' return finalizes his kingdom. Go ahead and flip over to Revelation 21 for this one. I'm going to meet you there in just a little bit. I've got some other scriptures I'm going to read first, but you can go ahead and go to Revelation 21. So, back when Jesus was still on the earth, when he was still here and he's still with his disciples, he had this really strange conversation with them recorded in John 14. Verse 1, this is what he says. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus starts off with this statement, let not your hearts be troubled. You know when somebody says that, the only time they say that is when they look at you and you look like you're troubled, right? Like So like the disciples are kind of in a bad spot right now and they're also just like, listen, don't freak out. And some of you need to hear that today too. Some of you in here today are troubled right now. You're troubled about your faith you're troubled about your future you're struggling to see clearly am i am i doing it good enough am i keeping am i keeping up am i am i good enough to keep god's grace in my life what if what if my cancer returns what if i, I have another heart attack what if i have another stroke and things don't what then what if i lose my job and then we can't keep up on the bills what if What if I never find that special someone that I've been searching for? We all have these moments, right, where our hearts are troubled. And if that's you today, Jesus is saying to you the same thing he said to the disciples right here. He says, look, as lovingly and mercifully as He can, he's saying, look, look at me. Look up at the kingdom. Don't look at you. Don't look at the circumstances. Don't look at your." Their troubles, look at me. Look up and see. He says, believe in me. Trust me. I won't let you down. Trouble's gonna come. All right? That was a great place for naming. I'll do it again. Trouble's gonna come. All right? We've seen it, we've experienced it, and it's gonna keep coming until the day you die. Thanks for the pep talk, Micah. I'm just telling you, like, this is just what it is. But Jesus says it doesn't have to, to kill you, it doesn't have to beat you, it doesn't have to keep you. He says, Believe in me, I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again and will take you to myself. He says, no matter what comes to you in this life, your future is secure. You, if you believe in Jesus, you have a place with him in heaven. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. He says, I'm all you need. I am the only way, Jesus said, to get there. Just come, trust in me. Jesus is the only one who can guarantee you eternal life with God. But you have to believe. And you have to do it now, this side of death. Some would try to tell you that you can make that decision later. You cannot. Jesus says, believe in me now, before it's too late. If you haven't done that, I just encourage you, man, take him at his word. Believe today, now. What are you waiting for? Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes this. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Those who believe in Jesus, Paul says, are citizens of heaven. Citizens of a, a higher kingdom, right? We're not just citizens of the United States or citizens of the earth. We're not just citizens here. We have citizenship in a higher, better, eternal kingdom. He says, and because of that, one day our Savior is coming to transform us. To transform us into glorious, eternal bodies that will live with him forever. Forever. We don't know a whole lot about what that's going to look like. A lot of people want to talk about it, and they have ideas, and they have big charts and and graphs, and they want to tell you they know all these things about how it's all going to play out. Just read your Bible. It's not that clear, okay? But here's what is clear. God gives us, like, a couple, just a couple little insights, a couple little pictures of what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16 says this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so, you, so we, will be, we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. One day, one day Jesus is going to return. He's going to descend down from heaven, and he's going to cry out, and all those who believe, dead or alive, are going to rise up and meet him in the air. We're going to be flying to meet Jesus. Some of you are like, yes, always wanted to fly. Some of you are like, I don't even get on planes. That sounds like horrible to me, okay? It's okay. Jesus is going to be there. You're safe. It's all good, okay? And we're going to fly up, and we're going to meet with Jesus and see him face to face. And then it says right here, listen, we will always be with the Lord, that nothing will ever separate us again—not sin, not death, not anything—and then Paul tells us to encourage one another with these words. We're supposed to to say. I know it's hard right now. I know you've got trouble right now. I know it's not great. But listen, there's a better day coming. Just keep your eyes to the sky. Just keep your eyes on Jesus. We need to get our eyes off of all the things that we think are so important in this world that are fleeting and passing and will not last. And put our eyes on the one who's going to take us to eternity. And there's one more preview that I want to show you. This is Revelation 21. you got that in your Bibles. This is the picture God gives us of the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 21, one, verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. God promises that we're gonna have a new heaven and a new earth for a new covenant people and his new kingdom and it says that he will dwell with them and they will be his people. The thing that God has desired from the beginning of time will finally be completely fulfilled in his presence as we dwell with him and he is our God and we are his people. And there will be no more tears or death or mourning or crying or pain. There will be no more senseless violence and people getting shot no reason. There will be no more cancer or death. There will be no more mental illness plaguing the ones that we love. There will be no more war or injustice or racism. All human suffering will cease because all sin will cease in the presence of a holy and perfect eternal God. And we will be made holy by his presence. He goes on in verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. God says, it's going to be all new. And he says, it is done. It's finished. It is guaranteed. Christ finished it and guaranteed it when he died on that cross. And all who come to Jesus, he says, will drink from the spring of life without payment and be made whole. And they will be sons of God and they will live with him forever in glory. But there's a second group. He says, but the faithless, the faithless will be in the lake that burns with fire. Friends, I take absolutely no joy in having to say this. But I love you enough to tell you the truth. That if you do not believe in Jesus and put your faith in him, there will come a day where you will have an eternity, but it will not be with God. It will be in the torment of hell and fire and suffering. And God doesn't want that for you. He didn't make it for you. You understand that? He created hell not for you and I. He created it for Satan and his demons. But if you choose to go with Satan and his demons and not to follow Christ, then that is where you will end up. But he doesn't want that for you. Jesus doesn't want that for you. He died so it didn't have to be true. I don't want that for you. We do not want that. We want, he wants you to believe in him and be rescued for eternity with God. Jesus' return finalizes his kingdom. It'll be done. When he comes back, that's it. It's over. All things are settled. And the question that's gonna matter is this. When it is all finished, which side of the kingdom will I be on? When it's all done, when we're standing there before God and the judgments are being passed out, which side of the kingdom will you be on? God's side? In eternity with him? Or cast into the lake of fire? Only you can make that decision. And if you have not yet trusted in Christ, I would encourage you, I would beg you, I would plead with you to do that. Run to the rescue of your Savior. Live your unfinished story for the kingdom of God's glory. This is it. You're in the last chapter right now. This is the last chapter. And you have some days here left to live out. Some of you have been living for your own life and your own kingdom for way too long. And it's time to lay that down and come over and live for the kingdom of God's glory through faith in Jesus Christ. If you haven't done that, do that now. I'm getting ready to pray in just a moment. Pray and ask Jesus to save you and to bring you into the kingdom. Some of you have already done that. Praise the Lord. And if that's you, we get to look forward to, we get to rejoice that our future is guaranteed. We don't have to worry about it. You don't have to doubt it. Like if you have put your faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of you and change your heart, you are guaranteed a spot in the kingdom of glory. And we should rejoice in that and we should encourage each other in that. And that's exactly what we're gonna do right now. So I'm gonna pray. We're gonna thank the Lord that he has made a way for us. Then we're gonna sing and rejoice and praise his name that we are indeed found for the glory of the kingdom of God. Stand with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we just come before you now. We bow before you. We thank you, God, that you are indeed a holy, perfect, and yet merciful and loving God. Father God, we we thank you for pursuing us, for loving us, for not leaving us in our sin. Thank you, Lord, for wanting to be our God and for us to be your people. Lord, as we look ahead to the future, Lord, change our hearts today by the power of your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, both to those who believe in you and those who yet don't. And draw us all into your people, Lord, that we might believe and live for our Savior King. Lord, we rejoice today. We rejoice in your presence. We rejoice in your spirit that it is finished and we are eagerly awaiting the day when we will see you in glory. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, in Christ's name we pray.